Well, good morning and welcome to Faith and to our new message series from uh, the books of Timothy, First and Second Timothy, which we're calling Fight the Good Fight, uh, the Grace to Timothy. And so over the next several months, we'll be examining these very two personal and very powerful, what has been called the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters, which were aimed to strengthen and to reform and to advance the mission of God's church. Uh, Paul gives the actual purpose statement of these books in the third chapter of 1 Timothy, where he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And so Paul makes it clear what is the purpose of these books that he's writing, or these letters he's writing to Timothy, which is to show how God's people are to live and to behave, to, be, to conduct themselves as the household or the family of God, which is uh, his church, the living the church of the living God, the dwelling place in which God's concentration and presence lives. You know, Paul calls the church a buttress of the truth. And the word refers actually to a support or that which stabilizes a building. And this is a picture of a, a form uh, where you often see uh, these particular braces uh, structured uh, to stabilize the forming of a wall. But in uh, architecture, buttresses have been incorporated. And uh, you often will think of the flying buttresses, and this is in the, uh, the National, uh, Washington National Cathedral, and it's often in a lot of uh, old architecture of cathedrals. But Paul means here is that the church is responsible to support, to guard the truth, to serve the truth, to hold the truth steady against the storms of false teaching and forces that might undermine it. And so there's a key missional calling for the church. Now, some, some translators use the word uh, buttress as to mean foundation, but actually the, uh, that is not the proper word for this. It is more of supporting uh, the truth and holding it up. And then Paul calls the church a pillar of truth, a pillar, a column. A column is designed to hold up a roof, uh, to elevate it so it can be seen far away. This picture is a, a sketch of what was considered to be uh, the temple of the goddess Diana in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is located. Uh, it is one of the seven wonders of the world, and uh, it boasted of these hundred ionic columns that were 18 meters high, about 60 feet high, which uh, lifted this massive shining roof, and there's some remnants of that. John Stott says, just so the church holds the truth aloft, so that it is seen and admired by the world, as pillars lift the building high, often being unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to display and to hold up the truth of God. But the truth is not just Mere words. Uh, it is the living word of God, transforming word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the truth about Jesus Christ. It is the word of God who became flesh and lived and died and was taken up into glory. 
And so the church's responsibility is to buttress or support and elevate the truth as well as uh, display the truth. And so Paul is writing this letter and these letters to Timothy to guard the truth, to elevate the truth about Christ, about the gospel in his own life, and to make sure God's word is honored and practiced in the life, not only of the church, but of the leaders of the church of Ephesus, where Paul was sent, uh, has, has Paul sent Timothy to. So today, in this opening introduction, we're going to seek to capture, just briefly, an indispensable discipleship relationship in reference to Paul and Timothy. So let's look at the first three verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is the word of the Lord. And so after Paul's opening very gracious words, greetings to Timothy, he charges him with this chief and first calling. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge, that you may command, that you might order certain persons, certain men, not to teach any different doctrine. Now, we're going to be talking next week about what those particular doctrines were or could have been. But this was Timothy's first calling in his mission to Ephesus, the ministry of correcting rebuking, reproving, censuring, stopping certain (laughs) teachers. Stop it. (laughs) In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge, Paul says to Timothy. He says, preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season, and correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instructions. I remember when I looked at that passage in this charge to Timothy, this is, this is later on. Uh, after preaching the word, there are three words, three charges that he gives him. He gives him these three words. Correct, which is about reproving, admonishing, and censuring, and then re- and rebuke, uh, which is, again, a similar framing of those words. And then he says, and encourage with great patience. All of this is to be with great patience and careful instructions. But when I looked at these, this phrase, two out of the three are dealing with correcting and rebuking. <laughs> That's uh, not an easy task. How would you like to have Timothy's assignment? Particularly in a culture that esteems tolerance as the highest value. <laughs> A theologian, Jim Packer, said this, you have taken on a plumber. Every pastor or theologian is a kind of plumber. His responsibility is that the the nourishing water flows in for the good of the entire community and to make sure that the rubbish, the excrement, and the garbage flow out. (laughs) 
My dad was a plumber, so I know some things about plumbing. And if I had the choice of working with fresh water supply lines over sewer waste lines, I would tell you I would go with the former. I like clean water systems, but we need both to have a healthy functioning body and a healthy functioning church. We like, as uh, D.A. Carson says, we like to, com- to romanticize this business of Bible ministry and joyfully engage in the former calling and neglect the latter. And yet, the fact remains that across the age of the church's life, there has not been just opportunities of sharing faith in Christ and evangelism mission, but it's also been correcting those things that are polluting and infecting the church and are hurting the witness of Christ, whether it's uh, emphasizing marginal, disputable doctrines, or whether it is uh, teaching or against false doctrines, or having gifted communicators who make, them, who make much of themselves in the little of Christ. Gospel ministry, the ministry of the word is messy business. And Paul is charging Timothy to be in the mess. But the nature, the character, the image of the call of the gospel ministry that every follower of Christ must understand is expressed in a term that Paul uses later on. At the end of this chapter, Paul says this, I charge you, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. <laughs> wage the good warfare. It's a word from, we get strategy, is to wage war, to fight a campaign. He later says it in this way. Fight the good fight of faith, in chapter 6. At the end of Paul's life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so Paul really captures the nature of his calling of the gospel ministry as a fight, a fight of faith. And he is charging Timothy to be in that fight, to fight the good fight. And there was a big fight last Sunday night, a week ago, or last Saturday night, a week ago. Floyd Mayweather Jr. versus Conor McGregor. It was known as the money fight, or the biggest fight in combat sports history. Uh, It was this professional boxing match with the undefeated world champion Floyd Mayweather Jr. and the mixed martial arts MMA Conor McGregor. And uh, I didn't see the fight. I didn't pay per view. Now, some of you maybe actually saw this fight, uh, but the reality is, is that Mayweather virtually just allowed O'Connor or McGregor to wear himself out. Uh, he, McGregor came out with fast and furious punches trying to do him in, Mayweather in, but Mayweather just stood his ground, let him wear himself down, and then when he knew he was worn down, in his moment of weakness, he took him out. And uh, he earned over, what was expected, over $300 million in that fight. <clears throat> and McGregor 
earned $100 million for losing. Now, that's not too bad. You know, would you stand in the ring just for one? Anyhow. This is what Barclay says, though. He says, it is not a battle that we are summoned to. It is a campaign. Life is one long campaign, a service from which there is no release, not a short, sharp struggle with which we can lay down our weapons and rest in peace. To change, to change the metaphor, he says, life is not a sprint. It's a marathon race. The temptations of life never cease their search for a chink in a Christian's armor. We must remember that we are summoned to a campaign which goes on as long as life continues. Now, you, you might say, well, I'd really like a rest. I'd really like some, you know, there is no retirement in the Christian life. But Paul says there's another word. He says it is, he calls it the good fight. And the word means it's an excellent fight. In its nature and characteristic, it is precious, it's praiseworthy, it's noble, it's beautiful. The fight that we are called to, that the Christian is called to, is a good fight. It is the only really good fight. But you know, soldiers do get weary, and warriors get wounded. And so where do you go for the power for this fight? Where do you go for the power for this campaign? Yesterday morning, as I came to work on this sermon, I was feeling some powerful forces that were subduing my heart and uh, <clears throat> to rob me of the joy and the energy to prepare myself to preach this word today, to bring you renewing word for life. But before I could properly work on the sermon, I needed to work on my soul. And so I came in here and I just I said, I have really no energy for this. And I had to start really searching, well, what's going on in my own heart? And I, in the process, the Lord brought to mind Psalm 42. Psalm 42 and 43, these are a couplet of psalms. And in that psalm, Paul, there is a, a recant or a, a, a series of, of times where he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, my Savior, and my God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so what we see here is that the psalmist is brutally honest with God about exactly what's going on in his heart. He doesn't hold any punches. He just tells God exactly what he's feeling, but he doesn't stay there. He charges and he commands his heart, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He is preaching to his soul. He is preaching life, and he's preaching the scriptures, and he's preaching hope and salvation to his soul. He talks about how, yes, life is overwhelming. Deep calls to deep in the roars of your waterfall. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. But he says it's God's waterfalls. It's God's breakers that are flowing and pounding him. It's not just impersonal forces. Your hardships and my hardships are not either, uh, are, are given to us by either God's personal allowance, where he uses evil to do good, or by his permission as a God who disciplines his children uh, with hardship for their good. 
Regardless, God is in control. And in those valleys, the psalmist says, you're still directing your love to me by day. You are still with me at night in the presence with your songs. You hear my cries, you hear my prayers. You are close to the broken heart. You are my Savior and my God. And so what you need to remember is this, is that God is with you in the fight, that he will bring grace to you in the fight. And so the practice of faith is not a walk in the park. The practice of faith is not easy. It is a fight to the finish. It's a marathon, but it's a good fight and it's a good race. And in this series, God calls us to join with Timothy in this fight of the good fight and to see the grace that God has promised to Timothy through Paul. And so we need God's grace today to fight this fight of faith. And the key means of grace in these open, opening verses are about an indispensable relationship. God reveals an essential relationship of grace for this mission in the world. He shows us the mentor, he shows us the mentee, and he shows us the means of grace to fulfill our mission to the world. And so he opens with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. And so this is the begin. This convention. This is the conventional letter that Paul gives in many of his epistles to uh, the churches. It starts with acknowledging who he is. They open the letter. A lot of times, our letters we have our you know we sign it at the end. Well, in this way, in this era, people would say who they are first, and then and who they're directing this letter to, and. In words of encouragement. And so Paul uh, mentions in the opening that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command. Uh, in other places, he says by commission or by the will of God. Uh, Paul is here claiming that he is not just a missionary uh, or a little apostle, but he's a big A apostle. He is one of, he is just like one of the twelve with that type of authority of God and of Christ. He is one of the chosen, and uh, this is his authority. And Paul is anchored in that. You know, it's an interesting thing, and I, and I don't think we have often thought about this, but when Paul was converted in that powerful experience on the road to Damascus, and, and he saw the light and was blinded, and he came to realize that, that he was persecuting Jesus. Uh, he says in uh, Galatians chapter 1 that, at that after that point, he did not go to Jerusalem to see the other apostles, but he went to Arabia, and then he went to Damascus, and then after three years... After three years, he went up to Jerusalem to meet the apostles. Three years. You know, Paul, for three years, was personally mentored by Jesus Christ in that period of time. And Paul, as this Pharisee of Pharisees, and all of the steeped into the faith of the Hebraic faith as a scholar was able to process the unfolding of the movement of God's redemptive history uh, through Christ that was fulfilled in Christ. And so when he was finished those three years of his own seminary 
experience with Christ, he became the most powerful of the apostles for the furthering of the kingdom of God in our midst. And so, so Paul makes it very clear that you know, he is not speaking to Timothy uh, just as a, a normal person. <laughs> he is speaking with divine uh, authority by the command of God. That is his office. And uh, one of the amazing things that I found in this picture here is uh, this, this uh, could you see, let me see the other one. Yeah, let me, this, this, this image uh, reveals Paul's, the cities that Paul visited uh, during his ministry of, you know, some 30 years. Uh, over 50 uh, cities were visited, at least uh, during his five major travels or journeys. Uh, and you start thinking about Paul and what happened uh, through him and the teams around him for the advancement of the church of God. Uh, Virtually, you know, before, you know, when Jesus' ministry was concentrated in Jerusalem, and then you had the church of Jerusalem pretty much just centered in Jerusalem, but then at Antioch, uh, we find that when Paul entered into that and was sent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to us, to the world, uh, this was what took place in 30 years. It's a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, some people have considered that the letters to First and Second Timothy really were not such pastoral letters, although that they deal so much with the nature of the church and pastoral uh, leadership in the church, but they're really apostle Letters. They are letters of the mission to advance the mission of the church. Timothy wasn't the pastor in Ephesus. He was a delegate of the apostle Paul to correct things and then to return to Paul and to support the mission to other places. Uh, this image here is, is uh, an interesting timeline of Paul's life, and it's actually, uh, you can see that in the middle of Paul's missional life enters Timothy. Before that, it was Barnabas. It was Paul and Barnabas, uh, or Barnabas and Paul initially. Uh, It was Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that came alongside of Paul and persuaded the rest of the apostles that this was the man that we need to help advance this mission. And so this son of encouragement was with Paul in all those initial journeys up until uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And then we find that that Paul did not want to take Mark, John Mark, who apparently cowered out in one of the missional uh, experiences. You know, maybe he decided he didn't want to get beat up, and he saw Paul get beat up and and sometimes stoned and go to prison. He says, you know, I'm just... I'm just not up for that. And so we find that somehow John Mark leaves the mission field, and Paul uh, says, I'm not taking him with me. He's a, he's a, this is a high-risk leader. And so Barnabas, though, saw in John Mark the potential of, of, of growth, and he saw a humble spirit, and he says, as the son of encouragement, I'm going to invest in this brother. I, I see what he can become. And, of course, you know what? I'm really grateful for Barnabas, aren't you? 
Uh, I'm actually grateful for Jesus because when you see how Jesus comes alongside of really messed up leaders like the disciples and stayed with them, it's always been a great encouragement to me that there's hope for all of us. Uh, but at that moment, Paul wasn't ready to take John Mark. So the next thing we find, he, he sent out with the blessing of the apostles, and the very first city he goes to is Lystra, a city in Galatia, and there uh, he's encouraged about to take this young man by the name of Timothy with him. He, his mother was Jewish, his grandmother uh, was Jewish, but they were both believers, and it appears that at a earlier um, time where Paul came into that city, he preached the gospel. We don't know at that point uh, whether it was, you know, that, that Timothy experienced the, uh, the salvation at that point, but we do know this, is that he had these two godly uh, parents, his mother and his grandmother, that invested in him, that prayed for him, and uh, all you mothers out here and grandmothers, your prayers for your children and your grandchildren, God hears those, and they are effectual. God listens to the heart cries of mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers. So keep praying, keep praying. But here we find that Paul takes Timothy, and we see uh, this movement uh, continuing. Uh, let me, that other slide... And you can see that virtually Timothy is with Paul throughout the rest of his life, uh, or at least connected with him in a very strategic way. So many of the letters that we find later are Paul and Timothy writing to the churches. And so this became Paul's key support, this mentee. So Paul, uh, this says to Timothy, my true, my true child in the faith. And when he uses that word true child or true son, the word actually means genuine. And because uh, Timothy was of a mixed birth, that his father was Greek, his mother was Jewish in the Jewish faith, they would have seen him and classified him as an illegitimate child. But for Paul, he was genuine. He was his genuine child. He was a legitimate son, even though he wasn't his physical son. In so many ways, Timothy was his dear, beloved son. Uh, we find that Timothy is a, a person that a lot of us are attracted to. Why is that? <laughs> he was timid. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true that that Timothy was a person who really struggled with uh, a sense of affirmation. He needed affirmation. He needed encouragement. He was temper temperamentally shy. Uh, he told the Corinthians to put him at ease. Uh, he's always trying to fortify Timothy. He's always telling him and encouraging him. And there's so much encouragement that goes on in these two letters. Uh, Timothy was young. Uh, we don't know exactly how young. He probably was in his 30s. Uh, they say that you're still a young man. Uh, the 30 is the first stage of a young man's age, and it extends to 40, uh, as all will admit, Irenaeus said. So if you're in that spirit of time, you're still young. I'm beyond that now. 
But Timothy felt inexperienced. He understood his immaturity, and he always felt inadequate and incompetent to the task. And I think for many of us, we can identify with the nature of Timothy. But Timothy was also uh, physically infirmed. Apparently, he had recurrent uh, stomach issues, uh, habitual ailments, and Paul told uh, told Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And so here's Timothy, this, this, young, this young man who uh, tends to shy away from hard assignments and tasks. He feels inadequate. He feels incompetent. He feels weak. He doesn't feel like he has what it takes and plus, he's physically challenged. And, you know, I think about his stomach issues. You know, he, he, it was probably a lot of the stomach issues related because of anxiety, because of all of the, the pressures that, that ends up into your stomach. And I remember early on in the first years of trying to plant this church, like I would, I would physically get sick before I would walk into this pulpit. I don't get as sick as much anymore. But it was... The public speaking for a lot of people is like the scariest, hardest thing that you can imagine. And even though I get up in here and I preach uh, because I feel called to, I will tell you that it's the hardest thing that I do. And uh, I go through a huge amount of, uh, of, of warfare uh, to step into this spot. And it's been 37 years, and really, it hasn't changed. But here's the thing. God gives the grace, and he gives the strength because his calling is his equipping, and he will provide what you need to fulfill your calling. And this is one of the reasons that so many of us find uh, Timothy such um, a person we identify with. I, I want to also say about Timothy you know, it says that Paul had him circumcised. <laughs> he's a young man, okay? He's not a little baby. Uh, he's not an eight-day-old baby being circumcised. He's now a young man. He was not circumcised, but in order for him to be able to have free engagement in the synagogues and, and within the Jewish communities that Paul would go to first in every city, uh, Timothy agreed uh, to be circumcised. You know, Paul says... I become all things to all people so that I might win some, or I may win as many as possible. Well, Timothy, <laughs> he practiced that. Timothy was a, uh, he called him, uh, do the work of an evangelist, and Timothy was indeed an evangelist. So, who is your Paul? And who is your Timothy? Who might be your Barnabas? You know, we all need Pauls in our lives. We all need the mentors who, can, who, who are the mature Christians before us that can teach us and shape us and mold us. And we all need the Timothys because we're all called to be disciple makers. You know, right now, over in uh, St. Louis, there's uh, Stan and Bill and uh, Ann Malio and Ruben and uh, Golda, uh, folks from our church, are in St. Louis at a leadership uh, development resource conference uh, that's going on this weekend. 
uh, and it is uh, to uh, it's a movement for men and women, ministry leaders, volunteers, pastors, and church families who desire to address core concerns in the black communities. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the parts of our, uh, the, in the Presbyterian Church in America, a movement that's taken place. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful occasion for just, uh, for that kind of focus. Uh, it's invited, uh, anybody can go, but it is a, it's a focused conference. And there's a powerful movement. And actually, it was, uh, it really emanated from Y. Plummer, who was a former uh, member and leader in this church. But, we need, we need to be around people that can help grow us and to disciple us. Uh, here's some of my mentors. Uh, that, this guy uh, is Mark Pett. Mark Pett was my pastor from Liberty that sent uh, Marie and I, the church, into uh, to the city those many years ago. Uh, but Mark uh, was a very gifted man uh, very passionate for the mission of the church and for seeing leaders develop and emerge. Try to imagine you're in a church that just keeps growing. And you have to multiply services. But you don't want to just become a mega church. You want to become a multiplying church. And so I watched this church send out and plant five churches in three years. We were one of those churches. Now, a lot of the church plants, they sent out teams of people, you know, and so they, were, they started with large groups, and it was a wonderful experience. When Marie and I came here, that was not the case, but God was very merciful. But uh, this picture is a picture of Pastor Tony Dorsey. Uh, so here, as uh, I came into uh, the city, Green Mountain Avenue, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I needed a mentor. And, uh, and I met Pastor Tony Dorsey. He's the pastor, he was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Pimlico. This, this hold it, back up. Uh, this was a picture of some years ago, Baltimore Christian School that was housed here, and that was our ministry for 18 years. But Pastor Dorsey was the key pastor that assisted us in that. Pastor Dorsey uh, was a former drug dealer. Uh, he walked into a church to make a drug deal. And in the process, he got saved, Mount of Bible Church. And, uh, and when I met him, he was, he, he, he was the most gracious, humble, gifted uh, brother in the city for me at that time, and, uh, and I said, listen, I'm just a, I'm a green country boy. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. He says, well, I'm just a, a saved hoodlum from West Baltimore, and uh, he just welcomed me, embraced me as a brother, and he mentored and discipled me. It was just huge uh, for me, Pastor Dorsey. Pastor Dorsey, the Lord took home uh, about three weeks ago. Um, the other picture, Mark Pett, my first mentor, uh, he, the Lord took him home in his mid-40s. Uh, he got cancer. Uh, uh, no, back up. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> and these two guys, uh, the guy on the left is Manny Ortiz. Uh, Manny Ortiz uh, was from Puerto Rico, uh, was a pastor in Chicago that planted like five churches, and then he came to Philadelphia and, and uh, was the pastor 
of the Spirit and Truth Church and became a professor at Westminster Seminary. And he modeled for me a theology of reconciliation that was very, very powerful. Uh, on the right is Harvey Kahn, who was uh, my, uh, a key professor, uh, a uh, just a missiologist with a huge passion for people that has impacted me. Both, and this year, Manny Ortiz, the Lord took home in February. Uh, and so I have lost two of my key mentors uh, this, this year. And uh, this next picture, I'm glad I have Stan with me. Stan is mentoring me still. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a story of uh, Belgium horses are, are trained uh, to work together as teams. They are huge horses, and they can, like, carry or pull 8,000 pounds. A one horse can pull 8,000 pounds. But here's the interesting thing. Belgian horses who are teamed up together can pull 24,000 pounds, triple what they can do individually. And they've actually been able to train those horses to pull up to 32,000 pounds as a team of two. I will tell you there is something very exponentially powerful when God puts together teams of disciple makers. And there's a reason why Jesus sends out two by two this in the 72s. And while we find in the whole book of Acts that there are teams uh, that are sent out, so you have Paul and Silas and Timothy, or you have Paul and Barnabas. And here's a question for you, disciple maker. Who is your Timothy, and who is your Paul? And you say, well, listen, I'm not an apostle. I, I, that's not my calling, you know. Uh, but this is what you need to know. It is... You're calling, by the command of Jesus Christ, you are called to make disciples. You are a disciple maker. You can say, Craig Garriott, Maria Garriott, a, dis a disciple maker by the command of Jesus Christ. You can put your name into that. You might not, you're not an apostle like Paul, but you are called as a disciple maker by Christ himself. That is what... Matthew 28 tells us, and that is actually, there's a rebuke that happens in the end of uh, the chapter of Hebrews chapter 5, where Paul tells the Hebrew uh, that a lot of you are still learners when you should be teachers. And so the church is not to be a place just to consume. It is a place of equipping for disciple makers. And so I'd like you to be thinking about who are you connected to that you're growing from in a personal way that is encouraging the forwarding of your gifts? And who are you engaging with to train and to strengthen? And I realize that some of you are maybe young in the faith and you're still in process and you're trying to figure this out. Uh, we have community groups uh, in our church where disciples are meeting weekly and we're getting ready to relaunch those. And that on the uh, Connections booth, uh, there are ways that you can get connected to community groups. But if you're, if you're looking for avenues of how to develop in your disciple-making or, or who you can maybe connect with, uh, we want to be there to help you. Our community group leaders want to be there to help you. And, uh, and if you need resources and you can't find them, please contact the church office. 
Um, the last thing that Paul, and this is, by the way, our last single service Sunday, as we've mentioned, it's been a good break, has it not? For many of the, the leaders, uh, you know, summer has been a time to kind of uh, take the tension off of our, our bows and to get refreshed and renewed so we can, uh, can be strong. But as, why, and some people have asked me, why, is, why can't we just stay like this? Why can't we just have one service? Uh, if, you know, and right now this is Labor Day weekend, so a lot of the folks are not even here this weekend. And uh, the reality is, is that a church that doesn't create space uh, doesn't have a, a welcome mat before it. It just, it's a closed thing. And so the verse that we heard today, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in their numbers daily. So we would need to create space where God is calling people. And I want you to think about this as we move into this next year, ministry year. Who would God call you to invite and to be praying for? Who is God putting on your heart who you know might be a struggling in their spiritual life but might be open to exploring the Christian faith or someone who is disconnected from the church and maybe they've been wounded by church but want to experience the uh, opportunity to reconnect? Who, would, who might that be in your life that you might invite to the church? We'll have uh, cards, a little business cards that has the uh, the series on it and the invitation that you can take to help you. But it's important for us to be a people that are welcoming to the, to the body of Christ. As we come to this table, uh, we recognize that Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And so... As we come to this table, you need to realize this. Jesus hasn't left us. The Holy Spirit hasn't departed. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are present, and he has instituted this table as a means of strengthening for our mission into the world. You know, Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. Uh, so this meal, while it's a reminder of Christ's undying love for us and his real presence with us, is also a missional strengthening for us to fulfill our calling into the world. Who is this table for? This is for anyone who has confessed their sins, have, are seeking to repent of their sins, and are coming to Christ asking him to be their savior. If you've made Christ your savior, you've repented from your sins, and you're seeking obedience in his church, um, then he welcomes you to this table. If you haven't done that, I'd like to ask you to let this pass so that you don't eat and drink judgment on yourself, as Paul tells us, but that you can come to this table in the future as a son or daughter. We would love to talk to you about how that can happen. But let's pray. Lord, I'd like to ask the officers to come forward. Lord Jesus, as you give us this table, uh, you remind us that you are uh, a rescuer, that you are a redeemer. Uh, Lord, we have seen and heard many stories uh, this past week of Hurricane Harvey and how many uh, have sought to rescue and who have given their own lives. Uh, Lord, 
we know that many people in this, in this hurricane have extended themselves to the utter extremes in order to save others. Lord, they are representing a very profound reality uh, and connection to you as our God who is our Savior. Lord, we pray for comfort for those, those people and those families who have lost loved ones. But Lord, you are the one who loves us to the depths that we might be raised to eternal life. And so, God, we thank you for this meal, which is a reminder of that undying love. God, would you strengthen us through it? Uh, Jesus, would you meet us in it? Holy Spirit, would you uh, give us the courage to fulfill your calling into the world? And so we commit this meal to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took the bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me.